0: Looking for a way to keep your feet warm this uh, winter? This fall? Have I got some news for you? BunnySlippers.com. You can get some of those classic, classic OG bunny slippers that you've seen in so many movies, you remember from your childhood. You can pick them up at BunnySlippers.com. You want some Cthulhu to slip your feet into? BunnySlippers.com. They've got zombie faces, they've got a. Uh, hobbit looking feet they've got godzilla feet they've got usb powered slippers you plug them into your computer you warm them up you unplug them you put them on your feet they've got ones like i think they look like s'mores that you can put in the microwave oh they're so cool and my personal favorite the knitted owl slippers oh they've got dog ones too but the owl ones the owl ones are lovely check them out bunnyslippers.com. Today we will be talking about in this cool guy bonus episode, hello, we'll be talking about my favorite murder, no, no, not that amazing podcast I talked about in the last episode, no, the story by the one, the only, Ambrose Bitter Bierce Bierce, yes, your favorite cynic in mind, the creator of the twist tale, the author accused of assaulting his readers um, verbally through books with twists and turns and, and rough imagery and... Oh, goodness. I mean, what do you expect of kind of a pissed-off Civil War veteran who works for William Randolph Hearst? I mean shit's not going to be pleasant and yeah we talked about Bierce, and uh <laughs> you know we're talking about a guy who writes scary stories and then you know when he gets old doesn't want to die in an old folks home no he wants to go to mexico and witness the uh revolution firsthand where he supposedly died it's hard to say when and where he died because we don't have any proof he just fucking disappeared Ambrose Bierce so yeah we're going to talk about my favorite murder with Ambrose Bierce his short story my favorite murder by Ambrose Bierce Having murdered my mother under circumstances of singular atrocity, I was arrested and put upon trial, which lasted several years, in which, summing up, the judge of the court of acquittal remarked that it was one of the most ghastly crimes that he had ever been called upon to explain away. At this my counsel rose and said, May it please, Your Honor, crimes are ghastly or agreeable only by comparison." If you were familiar with the details of my client's previous murder of his uncle, you would discern in his later offence something in the nature of tender forbearance and filial consideration for the feelings of the victim. The appalling ferocity of the former assassination was indeed inconsistent with any hypothesis but that of guilt and had not been for the fact that the Honorable Judge before whom he was tried was the president of a life insurance company which took risks on hanging, and in which my client held a policy. It is impossible to see how he could have been decently acquitted. If Your Honor would like to hear about it for the instruction and guidance of Your Honor's mind, this unfortunate man, my client, will consent to give himself the pain of relating it under oath. The district attorney said, Your Honor, I object. Such a statement would be in the nature of evidence, and the testimony in this case is closed. The prisoner's statement should have been introduced three years ago, in the spring of 1881. In a statuary sense, said the judge, you are right, and the Court of Objections and Technicalities, you would get a ruling in your favor, but not in a court of acquittal. The objection is overruled. I accept, said the district attorney. You cannot do that, said the judge. I must remind you that in order to take an exception, you must first get the case transferred for a time to the court of exceptions upon a formal motion duly supported by affidavits. A motion to that effect by your predecessor in the office was denied by me during the first year of this trial. Mr. Clerk, swear the prisoner, the customary oath having been administered, I made the following statement, which impressed the judge with so strong a sense of comparative triviality of the offense of which I was on trial that made me no further search for mitigating circumstances, but simply instructed the jury to acquit. And I left the court without a stain upon my reputation. I was born in 1856 in Kamakee, Michigan, of honest and reputable parents, one of whom heaven had mercifully spared to comfort me in my later years. In 1867, the family came to California and settled near Nigerhead, where my father opened a road agency and prospered beyond the dreams of artifice. He was a silent, saturn man then, though his increasing years have now somewhat relaxed the austerity of his disposition and I believe that nothing but his memory of the sad event for which I am now on trial prevents him from manifesting a genuine hilarity. Four years after we had set up the road agency, an itinerant preacher came along and having no other way to pay for a night's lodging, which we gave him favored us with an exhilaration of such power that, praise God, we were all converted to religion. My father at once sent for his brother, the Honorable William Ridley of Stockton and on his arrival turned over the agency to him, charging him nothing for the franchise or plant and later consisting of a Winchester rifle, a sawed-off shotgun, and an assortment of masks made out of flower sacks. The family had moved to Ghost Rock and opened a dance house. It was called The Saints Rest Hurdy Gurdy, and the proceedings each night began with a prayer. It was there that my now-sainted mother, by her grace in the dance, acquired the soubrette, the Bucking Walrus. In the fall of 75, I had occasion to visit Coyote on the road to Mala, and took the stage to Ghost Rock. There were four other passengers, about three miles beyond Nigerhead. persons who I have identified as my Uncle William and his two sons, held up the stage. Finding nothing in the express box, they went through the passengers. I acted a most honorable part in the affair, placing myself in line with the others, holding up my hands and permitting myself to be deprived of $40 in a gold watch. From my behavior, no one could have suspected that I knew the gentleman whom gave the entertainment. A few days later, when I went to Nigerhead and asked for the return of my money and watch, my uncle and cousins swore they knew nothing of the matter, and and they affected a belief that my father and I had done the jobs ourselves in dishonest violation of commercial good faith. Uncle William even threatened to retaliate upon starting and starting an opposing dance house at Ghost Rock, as the Saints Rest had become rather unpopular, and I saw that this would assuredly ruin it and prove a pain enterprise. So I told my uncle that I was willing to overlook the past if he would take me into the scheme and keep the partnership a secret from my father. This fair offer he rejected, and then I perceived that it would be far better and more satisfactory if he were dead. My plans to that end were soon perfected, and communicating them to my dear parents, I had the gratification of receiving their approval. My father said he was proud of me and my mother promised, although her religion forbade her to assist in taking human life, I should have advantage of her prayers for my success. As a preliminary measure, looking into my security in case of detection, I made an application membership in that powerful order, the Knights of Murder and in due course was received as a member of the Ghost Rock Commandery. On the day of that my probation ended, I was for the first time permitted to inspect the records of the Order and learn who belonged to it. All rites of initiation having been conducted in masks, fancy my delight when looking over the role of membership, I found the third name to be that of my uncle, who indeed was junior vice chancellor of the Order. Here was an opportunity exceeding my wildest dreams. To murder, I could add insubordination and treachery. It was what my good mother would have called a special providence. At about this time, something occurred which caused my cup of joy, already full, to overflow on all sides. A circular cataract of bliss, three men, strangers in that locality, were arrested for the stage robbery in which I had lost my money and watch. They were brought on trial, and despite my efforts to clear them and fasten their guilt upon three of the most respectable and worthy citizens of Ghost Rock, convinced, on the clearest proof. The murder would now be as wanton and reasonless as I could wish. One morning, I shouldered my Winchester rifle, going over to my uncle's house near Nigerhead, asked my Aunt Mary, his wife, if he were home, adding that I had come to kill him. My aunt replied with a particular smile, and my aunt replied with a particular smile that so many gentlemen called on the same errand and were afterward carried away without having performed it, that I must excuse her for doubting my good faith in the matter. She said it did not look as if I could kill anybody, so so as a guarantee of good faith, I leveled my rifle and wounded a Chinaman who happened to be passing the house. She said she knew whole families who could do a thing of that kind, but Bill Ridley was a horse of another color. She said, however, that I could find him over on the other side of the creek, in the sheep lot, and she added that she hoped the best man would win. My Aunt Mary was one of the most fair-minded women whom I have ever met. I found my uncle down on his knees, engaged in skinning a sheep. Seeing that, neither gun nor pistol handy, I had not the heart to shoot him. So I approached him, greeted him presently, and struck him with a powerful blow in the head with the butt of my rifle. I had very good delivery, and Uncle William lay down on his side, then rolled over on his back, spread out his fingers, and shivered. Before he could recover the use of his limbs, I seized the knife that he had been using, and cut his hamstrings. You know, doubtless, that when you sever the tendon achilles, the patient has no further use of his leg. It is just the same as if he had no leg. Well, I parted them both. And when he revived, he was at my service. As soon as he comprehended the situation, he said, Samuel, you have got the drop on me and can afford to be liberal about this thing. The only thing I ask of you and that thing is that you carry me to the house and finish me in the bosom of my family. I told him I thought that a pretty reasonable request, and would go do so if he would let me put him in a wheat sack. He would be easier to carry that way, and if he were seen by the neighbors en route, it would cause less remark. He agreed to that, and going to the barn, I got a sack. This, however, did not fit him. It was too short and much wider than he was, so I bent his legs, forced his knees up against his breast, and got him into it that way tying the sack about his head, and I had to do all I could to get him on my back. But I staggered along for some distance until I came to a swing, which some of the children had suspended from a branch of an oak. Here, I laid him down and sat him to rest, and the sight of the rope gave me happy inspiration. In 20 minutes, my uncle, still in the sack, swung free to the sport of the wind. I had taken down the ropes, tied one tightly about the mouth of the bag, thrown the other across the limb, and hauled him up there about five feet off the ground, fastening the other end of the rope to the mouth of the sack. I had the satisfaction to see my uncle converted into a huge pendulum. I must add, he was not himself entirely aware of the nature of the change which he had undergone in relation to the exterior world. Though, in justice to brave a man's memory, I ought to say that I do not think he would have any case to have wasted much of my time in a vain remonstrance. Uncle William had a ram which was famous in all that region as a fighter. It was in a state of chronic constitutional indignation. Some deep disappointment in early life had soured its disposition, and it had declared war upon the whole world. To say that it would but anything accessible is but faintly to express the nature and scope of its military activity. The universe was its antagonist. Its method was that of a projectile. It fought like the angels and devils in midair, cleaving the atmosphere like a bird, describing a parabolic curve and descending upon its victim as just the exact angle of incidence to make the most of its velocity and weight. Its momentum, calculated in foot tons, was something incredible. It had been seen to destroy a four year old bull by a single impact upon that gnarly animal's forehead. No stone wall had ever been known to resist its downward swoop, and there were no trees tough enough to stay it. It would splinter them into matchwood and defile their leafy honors in the dust. This irascible and implacable brute, this incarnate thunderbolt, this monster of the upper deep. It was Seen reposing in the shade of an adjacent tree, dreaming dreams of conquest and glory, it was with the view of summoning it forth to the field of honor that I had suspended its master in a manner described. Having completed my preparations, I imparted to the avuncular pendulum a gentle oscillation, and retiring to cover behind a contiguous rock, lifting my voice in a long, rasping cry, whose diminishing final note was drowned in a noise like that of a swearing cat, which emanated from the sack. Instantly, the formidable sheep was upon his feet and had taken in the military situation at a glance. In a few moments, it had approached stamping to within fifty yards of the swinging foreman who, now retreating and, and on advancing, seemed to invite the fray. Suddenly, I saw the beast's head drop earthward, as if depressed by the weight of the enormous horns. Then a dim, white, weavy streak of sheep prolonged itself from that spot to a generally horizontal direction within four yards of a point intermediately beneath the enemy. There it struck sharply upward, and before it had faded from my gaze at the place whence I had helped set out, I heard a horrible thump and a piercing scream, and my poor uncle shot forward with a slack rope, higher than a limb to which he was attached. Here the rope taunted with a jerk, arresting his flight, and back he swung in a breathless curve to the other end of his arc, a head of indistinguishable legs, wool, and horn, but pulling itself together and dodging as its antagonistic sweep downward. It retired at random, alternately shaking its head and stamping its forefeet, and again shot forward dimly, visibly, as before, a prolonging white streak of monstrous undulations ending with sharp ascension. Its course this time was at a right angle to its former one, and its impatience so great that it struck the enemy before it had nearly reached a lower point of its arc. In consequence, he went flying around and around in a horizontal circle, whose radius was about equal to half the length of the rope, which I forgot to say was nearly 20 feet long. His shrieks crescendo in approach and Dimuleto in recession made the rapidity of his revolution more obvious to the ear than to the eye. He had evidently not been struck in a vital spot. His posture in the sack and the disappearance from the ground at which he had hung compelled the ram to operate upon his lower extremities and the end of his back. Like a plant that has struck its root into some poisonous mineral, my poor uncle was dying slowly upward after delivering its second blow, the ram had not again retired. The fever of the battle burned not in his heart, but its brain was intoxicated with the wine of strife, like a pugilist who, in his rage, forgets his skills and fights ineffectively at half-arm's length. The angry beast endeavored to reach its fleeing foe by awkward vertical leaps as it passed overhead, sometimes, indeed, succeeding in striking him feebly, but more frequently, overthrown by its own misguided eagerness, but as the impetuous was exhausted by the man's circles narrowed in scope and diminished in speed, bringing him nearer to the ground, these these tactics provided better results and elicited a superior quality of screams, which I greatly enjoyed. Suddenly, as if the bulges Suddenly, as if the bugles had sung truce, the ram suspended hostilities and walked away, thoughtfully wrinkling its, mm, thoughtfully wrinkling and smoothing its great aquiline nose, uh, um, great aquiline nose, and occasionally cropping a bunch of grass and slowly munching it. It seems to have tried its war's alarms and resolved to beat the sword into plowshares and cultivate the arts of peace. Uh, steadily. <clears throat> Steadily it held its course away from the field of fame until it gained a distance of nearly a quarter mile. There it stopped, stood with its rear to the foe, chewing its cud and apparently half asleep. It observed, however, an occasional slight turn of its head as if apathy were more affected than real. As if apathy were more affected than real. Meanwhile, Uncle William shrieks had abated with emotion and nothing was heard from him for mm, nothing was heard from him but long low moans and long intervals and at long intervals my name uttered in pleading tones exceeding great mm, uttered in pleading tones exceedingly grateful to my ear evidently the man had not the faintest notion of what was being done to him and was inexpressibly terrified When death comes cloaked in mystery, he is terrible indeed. Little by little, my uncle's oscillations diminished, and finally he hung motionless. I went to him and was about to give him the coupe de grace when I heard and felt a succession of smart shocks which shook the ground like a series of light earthquakes. Turning to the direction of the ram, I saw a cloud of dust approaching me with inconceivable rapidity and alarming effect At a distance of some thirty yards away it stopped short and from the rear end it rose into the air what at first I thought was a great white bird. Its ascent was so smooth and easy and regular that I could not realize its extraordinary celerity and was lost in admiration of its grace. To this day the impression remains that it was a slow, deliberate movement. The ram, for it was an animal being upborne by some power other than its own impetuous, and supported through the successive stages of its flight while infinite tenderness and care. My eyes followed the progression through the air with unspeakable pleasure, and the greater by contrast with my former terror of its approach by land. Onward and upward, the noble animal sailed, its head bent down almost between its knees and its forefeet thrown back, its hindered legs trailing to the rear like the legs of a soaring heron. At a height of forty or fifty feet, as far as I could judge, it attained its zenith and appeared to remain an instant stationary. Then tilting suddenly forward without altering the relative position of its parts, it shot downward onto a steeper and steeper course, with augmenting velocity, passed immediately above me with a noise like a thrush out of a cannon shot, and struck my poor uncle almost squarely on top of his head. So frightful was the impact, not only the neck was broken, but the rope too. The The body of the deceased, forced against the earth, was crushed to death beneath the awful front of that meteoric sheep. The concussion stopped all the clocks between Lone Hand and Dutch Dan's. The professional Davidson, who happened to be in the vicinity, promptly explained that the vibrations were from the north to the south. Altogether, I cannot help thinking that, in point of atrocity, my murder of Uncle William has seldom been excelled. And that is My Favorite Murder by Ambrose Pierce Facts about My Favorite Murder. It was published in 1888. By Ambrose Pierce. It was first published in the San Francisco Examiner, September sixteenth, nineteen or eighteen eighty-eight. And it's kind of, kind of, kind of fucked to think that um, my favorite murder was first first appeared in a newspaper. That's it for that episode. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week when we will be talking about. The Book of Ibon and Various Sorcerers. Woo! And just remember, this is a bonus episode, and there is going to be another episode this week relating to the Book of Ibon and sorcerers. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you later. Stay safe. Stay weird. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Woo! Just a reminder, we are part of the Dark Myths Collective. And you can check out me, Blurry Photos, Eastern Borders, all those guys, and not to mention Inward Empire, on darkmyths.org. That's darkmyths.org, the Dark Myths Collective, which I am a part of. And hey, let's hear a little bit about Inward Empire from themselves. Greetings, listeners. I'm Sam Davis, the host of Inward Empire, a podcast that explores the role of ideas, ideology, and myth in American history. Each episode plunges you eye deep into a world that's both intensely familiar and profoundly different from the one we live in now. From the forests of colonial New England to the scarred mental battlefields of Civil War veterans to the contested streets of Gilded Age cities, I aim to bring the American past alive for my listeners, and at the same time, illuminate the American present. For more information about the show, visit darkmyths.org or my own website at inwardempirepodcast.wordpress.com. Thank you for listening to PGTTCM.com. I have been your host, D.B. Spitzer. And I would just like to remind people to, if you want to help this podcast grow and you don't want to spend any money, what you can do is rate and review us on iTunes. Seriously, you don't have to buy a t-shirt you don't have to donate any money on the paypal thing that the paypal donation button that's found on pgttcm.com and pgttcm.podbean.com no you just go to itunes you search pgttcm you rate us give us how many stars you feel like and give us an honest review if you think this show sucks let other people know let me know i'll do what i can to make it better And if your main suggestion to make the show better is get rid of that fucking idiot, well, we're going to have a problem there because I haven't been able to find anyone to take over the show for me. I've tried. And you can also check us out. I don't know. Just Google PGTTCM.com. If you want to follow me specifically, you can follow me on Twitter at DrunkSatanRobot. If you want to find any of my artwork, you can go to society Six. Or Redbubble and look up Drunk Satan Robot. So, so, ah. Anyway, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I have been your host, D.B. Spitzer. Thank you again. Check out all of my sponsors, founditemclothing.com, BunnySlippers.com, Go to darkmyths.org and find cool podcasts about scary, spooky, dangerous, deadly things, true crime, history, paranormal stuff uh and hey their one literary podcast pgttcm.com oh you can check out the tumblr where you can look at cool pictures of team rocket i am not a rocket shipper so you don't have to worry about whether or not it will be pictures of team rocket sucking each other off or anything like that uh thank you so much for listening to people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos i've been your host db spitzer I will try and throw out a reading uh, earlier for this week. Just uh, thank you for everyone for listening and tuning in and getting me onto the uh, podcast charts. I I premiered at 85 last last week, week before, and then dropped and disappeared from the charts almost immediately. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So let's, I don't know. Let's, let's, let's meet up here next week, okay? Um, I got something for ya. And remember, stay weird, stay safe. Peace! PGTTCM is edited, produced, and all that other stuff by D.B. Spitzer. Music by D.B. Spitzer and Kevin McLeod. Uh, yeah. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is also part of the Dark Myths Collective. Check them out. And don't forget that People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is awesome. Thank you.